the week after Easter. We celebrate it once a year, and then we forget that you know, Jesus died on the cross, and he, he was arisen, and that's true every day of the year. You're part of the resurrection every day of the year. So we wanted to take some time to go over it again and talk about some practical implications for what it means for you in your life from Colossians chapter 3. All right. Good morning. All right. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is, in, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now put away all of the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. The word of God. Thank you, Linda. I want to tell you about a time that I let a new identity go to my head. Last fall was my high school's homecoming. And one of my best friends from high school was an amazing athlete in high school. I played with him on the basketball team for a few years. And while I sat far left on the bench, he sat far right. In fact, he didn't even sit on the bench because he was usually in the game. And he was such a great player that he was all county in a couple different sports, not only basketball, but baseball. And he went on to play minor league baseball. Well, at our homecoming last fall, just six months ago, he was going to win an award for our high school and be ushered into our high school's Hall of Fame. Pretty big deal. Pretty awesome accomplishment. And he really, he deserved it. He was a great athlete. He was a great guy. And he was stellar whatever sport he played. Me, I was kind of a little bit below average. Uh, I enjoyed athletics, but I was never a star. Well, he called me the night of homecoming, the night that he was going to go there and we were going to go back to our old high school and he was going to get this award. And he said, hey, man, I'm sick. Uh, I need you to stand in for me. And I was like, you know, okay, this guy's my really close friend. I'll do this. It feels a little awkward, but I'll, I'll receive the award for him. That's not uncommon. That happens sometimes at like the Grammys when the star can't be there, someone receives the award for that person. So, so I went and they say, and now we'd like to induct, uh, his name's Josh, Josh into the Hall of Fame. And I go up 
And I'm standing up there, and I'm like, man, this is kind of awkward. And uh, everyone starts clapping. And they know that I'm not him. I mean, they know it. I, they, they know that I'm John, and they know that Josh is not there. But, but then they, they hand me this award. And I'm just kind of standing up there. I mean, you see right here, it doesn't say John Omis. It says Josh Presley. And I'm kind of just standing up there. And they're reading off all these lists of accomplishments that I had not done. And everyone's clapping. And then a photographer comes forward <laughs> and, like, takes my picture. And I'm like, you know. And it kind of went to my head a little bit. It's like, you know, this is, this is great. Can someone go get me a hamburger or something, you know. <laughs> Um, in honor and recognition of your significant athletic achievements in baseball and basketball. Man, this is great. I still have it. I, I've forgotten to give it to him. I've had it for six months, and I've had it up in my office. Um, as if it was mine, as if I had done all these accomplishments, um, because I was identified with him, I let it go to my head just a little bit, even though I hadn't done anything. Today's passage, in today's passage, Jesus wants your identity with him to go to your head. He wants your identity with him. Don't touch my award, by the way. Uh, he, wants your, he wants your identity with him to go to your head. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've centered your life on him, if you've turned away from a life of sin and said, Jesus, I need your cross, please forgive me, then you are identified with him. And he wants that identity to go to your head. He, uh, in our passage, one of the main phrases that starts off the passage is it says, set your mind. Let it go to your head. Let your identity with Christ define you. Jesus died on the cross. And if you identified with him, you, so to speak, died as well. You died to the power of sin so that sin no longer defines you. And you died to the penalty of sin because you've been freed from it. Your identity is with Christ. And you're to let that identity go to your head. But Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. Jesus was raised up to new life. And because you're identified with Jesus, you have the resurrection life in you. You have a new power by the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life, not because of anything you've done, not because of any of your accomplishments, but because of what Jesus has accomplished for you. And you're in him. But Jesus didn't just rise out of the tomb. He rose to the throne room. It says he's seated at the right hand of God. He has ascended into heaven. And because you're identified with him, your life is hidden with him in God. Your future is secure. If you're identified with Jesus and Jesus was with God, you're with God. Your life is hidden in God. And Jesus will one day return and transform the entire world. And if you're in Jesus, if you're identified with him, you will share in his glory. You'll be a totally renewed person in a totally restored world. And you're to let your identity with Jesus go to your head. Set your mind on things above. Now, that's not talking about, hey, let's just think about heaven all day. Let's just sit down in our pews and wait for Jesus to come back and do nothing. No, when it says set your mind on things above, what's above? Jesus. Jesus is above. And so setting your mind on things above doesn't just mean think about heaven. It means live 
with your mind on heaven here on this earth. Live under the reign and government of heaven while you're here in this world. See, if you're identified with Jesus, there are spiritual realities that are true of you, even though you can't see Jesus. And you're to let that go to your head by setting your mind on the king. Set your mind on things above means living according to the government of heaven while on earth. And that's the new life. You're living as a citizen of heaven under the reign of the king of eternity right here right now in, in Obi Johnson and in Hollywood and Hallandale, North Miami. And Jesus wants your identity with him to go to your head. That looks like two things in your life. When you set your mind on Christ and when there's new life in you, two things happen. You break up with yourself and you embrace a new self. You break up with yourself and you embrace a new self. Each person is created in the image of God and they're given dignity as God's creation. They're worthy of respect and love and joy. And yet each person has this part of themselves that desperately does not want to be under the rule of God. That says, I want to sit on the throne of my own life. I want to live life on my terms based on what I feel and what I desire. And what Paul is writing here in this passage is you have to break up with that part of yourself. That part of you that wants to rule and reign and say no to Jesus You have to put that part of you away. In fact, it's actually pretty violent what Paul says. Paul says, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Go after that part of you that doesn't want to submit to King Jesus and kill it. Not your dignity. Not the fact that you're made in the image of God, but that part of you that doesn't want to live under God. Put it to death. Break up with that part of you that doesn't want to live under the reign of King Jesus. And and Paul gives us three areas really to focus on. He gets very specific on how to do that. He looks at sexuality, he looks at spite, and he looks at speech. Sex, spite, and speech. Now the church has often focused on sexuality, and they focus particularly on throwing stones outside the walls and saying things about sexuality towards those out in the streets without looking at themselves and dealing with spite and speech. You know, we haven't looked at ourselves well enough and say, you know, are we living according to these spite and speech regulations according to the new life? But the new life is going to challenge all three areas. Resurrection life in you is going to challenge what it means to be uh, a sexual being, what it means to be someone who has spite welling up in them and how we use our mouths. And I think the church has also failed a little bit in just saying no in the area of sexuality without really painting God's beautiful creative vision for sexuality. We've said stop it without showing people the beautiful design as if God were afraid of sex. God made sex. He's not afraid of sex. And new life means that we actually look past our desires for sexuality and look towards his design for sexuality. Paul writes, Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. What Paul is saying 
is that you're to look at your actions and desires and bring them into line with God's vision and design for sexuality. With God's vision and design for sexuality. And here's what the vision and design is. It's right here in Genesis 2. After God makes woman out of the ribs of man, meaning that they need each other, God says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. The beautiful design for sexuality and marriage is that man and woman would join in a lifelong commitment and be one, sacrificially giving themselves to each other, prioritizing each other above anyone else and standing before each other unashamed, naked and unashamed. The ESV study Bible says, innocent delight. That's the foundation of the design for marriage. And so as we think about being renewed in our sexuality, it is saying no, but it's also being renewed in our vision for it. Paul Wright goes on to write, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In other words, as you get to know who God is as the designer, it renews your vision for sexuality. You say no to the things that are not part of his design. You say no to your desires in order that you can say yes to him as the creator. There's a few books that I want to recommend if you're thinking through these issues of design and desire. Uh, one is The Meaning of Marriage by a guy named Tim Keller, a great book that talks about the commitment of, of marriage between a man and a woman. Another one is called Washed in Waiting by a man named Wesley Hill. Uh, Wesley Hill is a pastor who has same-sex attraction and has decided to abstain from those attractions uh, out of faithfulness to God. It's a great book. It's called Washed in Waiting by Wesley Hill. And then the last one I haven't read uh, but I hear a lot of great things about it. It's called The Mingling of Souls, God's Design for Love, Marriage, Sex, and Redemption by Matt Chandler. So The Meaning of Marriage by Keller, Washed and Waiting by Hill, The Mingling of Souls by Chandler. And if you need those, I can, I can email them to you. I can email the titles. But the point is that God's design trumps our desire. And if the resurrection life is working in you, you'll learn to say no to that part of you that, wants, that desires something that isn't part of his design. Because, because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. Now, no one likes to talk about that, but it's here, so we got to. And it seems archaic to talk about God judging people because people have the freedom to do what they want. I mean, that's the air we breathe in our culture, and also no one's stopping them from doing whatever you want, or them or you, whatever, whatever you want to do. But here's the thing. You know, when the housing bubble burst 10 years ago, everyone had the freedom to do what they want to do, and they kept pushing and buying houses and getting loans, and people were saying, I don't know about this. And people just did what they wanted. They pushed, and they had freedom, and they acted until the bubble burst. And when the bubble burst, things all came crashing down. God in his grace is giving us insider information now about what will happen when he comes back. And you might have a freedom now to live out sexually how you want to, but God is saying you need to bring your sexuality under the reign of King Jesus because I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to judge. 
And I'm telling you now because I love you and because I'm gracious and I want you to know. You need to break up with yourself and live under the reign of King Jesus. Now, I have, uh, I'm not confused at all. I know that this is a very hard word to say in our culture, particularly because our culture says you cannot be fully alive unless you're sexually active in the way you want to be. That's the air we breathe. Being fully alive means living out your sexual uh, desires and living out your sexual identity. And our culture tells us if you can't do that, then you don't have an identity. You don't have significance. But let me encourage you to think about what we're looking at here, that our culture is constantly placing significance in the wrong place. Our culture is constantly finding identity and meaning in the wrong areas. Ronda Rousey was a, is an MMA fighter, and Sports Illustrated had named her the world's most dominant athlete. And she was the youngest American woman to ever go to the Olympics for judo. Uh, she, she was there when she was 14 years old. She switched over to mixed martial arts. She goes 12 wins in a row, and Sports Illustrated says she's the most dominant athlete in the world. Don't get in the ring with Ronda Rousey. And then she lost. In November of 2015, she lost, and she lost bad. She, she struggled because she realized that her identity was in this phrase, the world's most dominant athlete. And she was no longer dominant. She'd gotten dominated. And all of a sudden, her significance and her identity comes crashing down because she had placed her significance and identity in the wrong place. She thought that she was unlovable. She thought that she could never be fully alive again because she thought all her meaning was in that phrase, the world's most dominant athlete. See, our culture is constantly telling us to put our significance in things that are fading, to put our identity in the wrong places, in, in power, in wealth. And that's why Paul address, addresses greed. Don't be greedy. You're putting your identity in the wrong place. But he says to put your identity and significance and life in Jesus, which will never fade, which you can never lose. I know that some people wrestle with that because they say, I, I can't give up that part of me. I can't bring my sexuality into line under the reign of King Jesus. It isn't me. And I would say, you're right. It's Jesus. You're breaking up with part of yourself in order to live according to life with Jesus, to find your significance and identity in, in him so that you're no longer defined by your desires, but defined by Jesus' desire for you. You're alive to him. And, and here's the thing. I'm not just giving you a line. I'm not just being judgmental. Because if you start talking to people in this room, you'll find out that they have not always lived according to God's plan for sexuality. Let's just get real. We are broken people. And yet, even though we once walked in these things, when we were living in them, we walked away from these things because we found new life in Jesus. We found new life in Christ, fully alive in him, getting our identity and significance from our new life in him. We must rethink what it means to be fully alive, and here's why. 
Jesus was the most fully alive person that ever walked on the face of the earth. He was the, mo- he was the most fully alive human in all of history. And Jesus is a virgin. Jesus went to the cross as a virgin. Jesus rose from the tomb as a virgin. Jesus ascended to the throne room of God as in the highest position in all authority in all of heaven and on earth, and he's a virgin. He's never had sex, and he never will have sex, and yet he's the most fully alive person and in the history of humanity. We must rethink what it means to be fully alive because the most fully alive person in in the history of humanity is a virgin. So we must submit our desire to the design of the king and redefine what it means to be fully alive according to new life in him. We have been raised to life in Christ, getting our identity and significance from him and being defined by his love. We have to break up with the old you and your desires in sexuality in order to bring them under the design of the creator. But we also have to do that in the areas of spite and speech. Spite and speech. Paul writes, that we should put away all of the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Anger and wrath is being ruled by violent emotions. Malice and slander is harboring desires to injure each other and then using our mouths to do it. Filthy language is talking low and obscene in speech. Lying is intentionally being false to deceive someone else. And there's part of each of us that enjoys engaging in that. There's something that feels good about saying something bad about a person you don't like. But we have to break up with that part of ourselves. We're too quick to kind of break up with each other. Now, I don't mean boyfriend and girlfriend, but I mean we're too quick to write each other off. That's why we speak the way we do to each other, is because we don't want to break up with ourselves. We want to break up with you. You're bothering me. I don't like you. You wronged me. I'm done with you. And then we end up categorizing each other. And once we start categorizing each other and then treating each other according to those categories in the body of Christ, we'll no longer give ourselves fully to each other. Rich Christian poor Christian, woke Christian, not woke Christian, conservative Christian, liberal Christian. When we get frustrated by each other and when we're wronged by each other and when we don't necessarily agree with each other, we tend to put each other in categories and instead of defining each other by each other's identity in Christ, we categorize them so we can write them off and break up with them. But look what Paul writes. In Christ, there is not Greek or Jew. That's an ethnic distinction. Greek and Jew, ethnic distinction. Nor is there circumcision and uncircumcision. That, that's like a religious distinction. That the Jews were circumcised because they had a rich religious tradition, and those who were uncircumcised were not part of that tradition. It's a distinction. 
Then there were barbarians and Scythians, and the, the Scythians were violent and uneducated people. And then slave and free. And when Paul writes slave, he's not talking about the transatlantic slave trade. It was something quite different than that. But they were people on different ends of the economic spectrum. And what Paul is saying is, you are who you are, but in the body of Christ, there is no distinction. Everyone has the status of being in Christ. Your neighbor who you don't like, if they're in Christ, they died with Christ and were raised with Christ. That person that continues to say something to you that you just can't stand anymore, they have been resurrected to new life because they're joined with Jesus. And that person that, that wronged you deeply, Jesus is going to come back and let that person share in his glory. You see, we have to start categorizing each other as in Christ first. It's not that we lose our ethnic identity. It's not that we're magically transported out of our socioeconomic class. It's that we're brought into Christ and raised to new life in him. And therefore, we can't break up with each other. We can't write each other off. Because the main category is being in Christ together. It's like Runette said on the video, what does new life mean to you? Identity in Jesus Christ, both for me and for you and anyone that places their faith and trust in him. We're in to embrace each other's identity as those in Christ and embrace it for ourselves. You break up with the old you, but you embrace the new you, the in Christ you. Who is the new you? Well, this is what Paul says. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. Part of your identity being in Christ is that God moved towards you in love while you were still sinner. You know, you might, you might, <laughs> you might have someone else in the world that you wish would start a relationship with you and it hasn't worked out, but the king of the universe has moved towards you and chosen you in love holy and dearly loved and what that means is that you've been set apart for his purposes and god has set his affections on you you might not feel like god or like you have a purpose in life but god has a purpose for you and that's part of your identity in christ and christ has invited you into his life in him you are made like him so what do you do what do you do with this new identity well you put it on you wear it. A lot of you had on new Easter clothes last week, and you were excited about that. Let me encourage you that resurrection Jesus is better than putting on resurrection clothes. <laughs> I had a new outfit last week, and I liked it. But, but here's the thing. If your identity is in Christ, you don't just sit there. You put it on, and you wear it. And as you're invited into his life, you become more and more like him. You put on his characteristics, and by God's grace, it changes you. I mean, look what Paul says. Therefore, as God's chosen one, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. He uses that phrase, put on, several times. Now, we look at that list and we go, man, that's not really how the world lives. In fact, living that list out seems a little bit scary. 
because our world doesn't celebrate humility, it celebrates power. It doesn't necessarily celebrate kindness, it, it celebrates putting your foot down and not letting someone push you around. And so as we look at this list, our first thought is, well, is this saying be a doormat? Is this saying to let someone push me over? No. New life in Christ, as you put it on, it takes more strength than any other way of living. Humility and kindness and compassion and gentleness take incredible strength to live out. But the good news is that in Christ, you have the ability to do it because you're in him. And it's incredibly powerful. Some of you know the story about Robert Godwin, the man who was randomly shot by Steve Stevens in the last week. It was tragic. There was no point to it. It was absolutely senseless. And you would expect the family to rage. But the first words that were recorded in the press were words of forgiveness. It wasn't that they said, it's okay. You know, it didn't matter. No, it mattered. And yet they chose in strength to forgive Steve Stevens for killing their father. In fact, the daughter says, each one of us forgives the killer, the murderer. We want to wrap our arms around him. That's not weak. That's strength. The son said, Steve, I forgive you. I'm not happy with what you did, but I forgive you. It takes strength to be compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and patient and bear with each other and forgive any grievance you have. I love the title of Dr. King's book, Strength to Love. It takes strength to love, but you and I, through our identity with Jesus Christ, now have the ability to live this out. We have the strength to put on love. We don't have to deny when people wrong us. We don't even have to, like, stuff it. We can tell them when they hurt us. But we're also called to be compassionate and loving and forgiving. Jack Miller said this, Christian love is love that thinks. Love that sees into the heart of things and persists. This love is not naive, nor is it unwilling or unable to see evil. The strongest people in the world are the ones who forgive. And you and I now have that strength and power in Christ Jesus. Even if the person doesn't change or is slow to change, you know, you ever love somebody hoping that they'll change? Like you forgive them, wanting them to know what they've done to you and understand what they've done to you. Well, here's the thing is, we have this power and we're called to love even if the other person doesn't change. Because you and I change very slowly and Jesus has bared with us and Jesus has forgiven us and Jesus is compassionate with us and Jesus is gentle and patient with us. So embrace the new you. Put on Christ. See his forgiveness of you. See his resurrection life in you. We're not talking about getting more religious. We're talking about new power through resurrection in you. And that comes when you see that Christ has embraced you as you are. Christ has embraced you as you are.
We live in a world that's commitment-phobic, yet Jesus has committed himself eternally to, to you. We live in a world where people only give themselves to other people when they'll get something back, and yet Jesus has fully given himself to sinners. We live in a world that's so confused about what it means to be significant and have identity, and yet Jesus says, take my identity. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Take mine. And when he died, we died to sin. When he was raised, we were raised to new life. When he he ascended into heaven, our life was hidden with God. And when he returns, we will share in his glory. Let it go to your head. That's your story. You can't lose it. Take that identity on for yourself and live in it. Seek the things above. Live out the new life. And as you do that, you'll find that the peace of Christ rules in your hearts. You'll allow yourself to let Christ's word dwell in you and shape you and form you. And as you continue to seek Jesus, you'll find that your heart's full of gratitude towards God. Your identity with Christ changes everything. Let it go to your head. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that um, what you've done is so profound that you can actually share it with us and allow us to enter into your life. So I pray this morning uh, that you would change us and you would encourage us. Our, our tendency is to want to doubt that this is true, but by your spirit, seal it in our hearts that we might be free to believe the gospel. And all Christ's people said, amen.